Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are one of the greatest songwriting and producing duos in music history. Meeting in the same 1970s Minneapolis music scene that produced Prince, the pair formed the band Flight Time, an outfit that would morph into the original lineup of one of the most storied funk groups of the era, The Time. By 1983, the duo had begun more actively pursuing songwriting and producing, commencing a series of essential R&B singles for the likes of the SOS band, Sherelle, Cheryl Lynn, Alexander O'Neill, and many others. In 1986, they began their now legendary association with Janet Jackson, producing the Grammy Award-winning LP Control, the first of many career-defining efforts over the next three decades. In addition, they've crafted classics for the likes of Force MDs, Sounds of Blackness, New Edition, Human League, George Michael, Usher, and Mary J. Blige. It's safe to say, they are legends. In their lecture at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy in Montreal with Jeff Mao, Jam and Lewis recalled their formative Minneapolis years and revealed some of the secrets behind making hit records and staying relevant. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please welcome Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Yes. Well, I'm a, first of all, we're huge fans of collaborations. Obviously, we've collaborated for a long time. But I think just looking at the way we met and the whole thing, we first of all, we met in school. So we met educating or learning to educate, actually. We were in a program called Upward Bound, and it was about peer teaching, which was about teaching kids how to actually do math, which I was horrible in math. But I thought if I could get in a program to teach math, maybe I'd learn it better. Not very successful, but I, I, but it did uh, put me together with this brother, which is which is a great thing. And we came together over m music and listening to music. So for us, you know, our first collaboration was we put a band together, or Terry put a band together, and and I played in the band, and that was our first collaboration. But then when we wrote, we had a lot of trouble um, because I came up listening to like pop music and. Seals and Crofts and America and Chicago and stuff like that. He grew up listening to P-Funk, Earth, Wind & Fire, that kind of stuff. And what we tried to write together, it never worked. But we trusted the process. And over time, as we got to know each other better, we figured out finally how to make that work, how to make his funky bottom and my pretty top or whatever you want to call it to work together. So I'd say in any collaboration, yeah, trust is really important. But I think that you naturally will figure out the right people to work with, you know, the right combinations of things. I think it's important to, um, we have a saying where we just say we have no slack, meaning that we both know what we're good at, but we both know what we're not good at. So the things that Terry's good at, I let Terry do them. I'm not even, I'm not trying to do them. And at the end of the day, the best idea wins. So it's not whether it's his idea or my idea, it's about the best idea. And as long as you're, trying to get to the best idea, it doesn't really matter who comes up with it. So you really, first, you got to put your ego aside, I would say. 
And then you do have to trust, whether it's for a day or a week or, or whatever. Um, I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, and just the idea of right and wrong, you just got to throw that out the window. Best always wins. So what you mentioned Upward Bound, this is summer of 1972. What was your first impression of one another? Jimmy, what was your first impression of Terry and vice versa? <laughs> well, my first impression of Terry would be the equivalent of love at first sight. I, um, <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we were, we were, the cool thing was we're staying in dorms. And I'm like 13 years old. He's like 15, right? And so we're like young, right? Junior high kids. And, um. It was so cool. So we're walking through the dorms, and everybody's dorm rooms are open like the first day. And I walk past this dorm room, doors open. I'm hearing Cool in the Gang playing loud. And I walk in, I see a brother with a red, black, and green bass playing along to Cool in the Gang, playing all the parts. And I'm looking at this dude, it's Terry. And I'm like going, look at this motherfucker, man. I, I never seen nothing like that in my life. And I, was, and I was basically, I have family, but I have half-brothers and sisters all older than me. So I was basically grew up an only child. And it was like, seeing him was like, I got to get to know this dude. Like, he was like going to be my older brother or my best friend or something. Like, I just, I just knew when I, when I met him. And the music was so good. He looked so cool. And, you know, when you're 13, somebody 15 is like, that's a big deal. You know, it's like, you know. So that was my impression when I first saw him. It's like, I, I got to get to know him. Yes, in my first impression, I walked through the lunchroom one day. It was before dinner, but after lunch. And in the lunchroom, we had a piano, a little upright piano. And I walked through, and I see Jimmy Jam with a crowd of girls standing around him, <laughs> serenading the girls. And I said, man, this dude's kind of cool. And at that time, I didn't know that he was a drummer. So at the end of the project for the summer, we had a dance. And so... I asked the counselor, I said, can we put together a band and kind of play some songs? And he said, yes. So I, had already, I already had a, a little band together. David Island, who was a saxophonist, and Jelly Bean Johnson, who was a drummer. He was a drummer in the time. So I went and asked Jimmy, I said, hey, man, I got this little band together. want to put together something to play for this um, little thing coming up. Would you like to be in the band? He said, well, who's the, you want me to drum? I said, no, I want you to play keyboards. He said, I don't play keyboards, I play drums. I said, well, your dad plays keyboards. You can play keyboards, I heard you playing. So he consented to play, we went and stole his dad's keyboard. And uh, we got together and terribly played the, the little gig and we've been playing together ever since off and on. Yeah. Nice. So you mentioned actually your father, who's a musician, Jimmy. Um, when did you, did you have the bug then early as far as becoming a musician and having musical aspirations? Yeah, I mean, I was that kid you hear about that's always beating on stuff around the house, and uh, that was me. And then uh, my parents got me a drum set when I think I was three. They got me like a drum set, and I used to, you know, bang around. Then they got me like a more professional set when I was about eight. And I used to just blast records and play along with them all the time. That was, that was my thing. My dad had a band uh, that was basically just a trio. Just it was always a guitar player. My, my dad played keyboard and a drummer. And the thing was, he never could keep a drummer. Like every week, there'd be a different drummer, and he'd have to learn the set and the whole deal. So one time, probably, I was probably 12 at this point in time, and we used to go watch him play on the weekends, me and my mom. And... Uh, Somebody from the audience, or not even from the audience, but 
somebody, actually the guitar player in the group said, why don't you let him play a song with you, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do it. And my dad was like, nah, nah, he's too young, whatever, whatever. He says, he knows your whole set. He says, he's here every week. So I came in, I sat in and played a song. Crowd loved it. Next week, drummer didn't show up. I played the whole set. And then uh, the guitar player said, why don't you just put him in the band? And because you're just playing weekends anyway. So it was like, okay, cool. So, uh, and then he tried to give me like $5 or something. And then my wife, like, I mean, not my wife, my, my mom stepped in and said, no, nah, man, you got to pay him like you pay like a regular musician. She was like my agent at that point in time. <laughs> so then that's how that happened. And then that's how I started playing drums. So I literally every weekend would play uh, the drums for my dad. And I was only like 12, 13 years old. And it was fun because I was, you know, in a club and all that. And, it was, it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Loved it. And Terry, was music your first love or something else? Well, music was probably not even in the cards for me. I mean, I grew, I grew up in a family um, that loved music, but no one was musical. Uh, I had a stepfather who had a, he played guitar very badly, I might take, I might add. Um, but he would always break the top two strings. And that would leave the other strings there. So I used to pick up his guitar, and that's why I am a bass player to this day. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was an athlete and a good student. I wanted to be a doctor, actually. So I really always loved medicine. And my senior year in high school, I got injured uh, playing football. And I had a lot of time on my hands. And I started picking up music more and more and more and more. And... Music bit me and can't get rid of this bite now. <laughs> Actually, loved, I love music. Um, so that process kind of took me into all the other things that I did because as an athlete, I was always a leader or a person that would grab people and put them into something in the right position or whatever. And actually, I used that skill in, in um, having a band, you know, putting people in a position to succeed. It's almost like coaching. And... Um, kind of where we are now. Now, you mentioned that you guys joined a band together. However, you also had separate bands. How competitive was the band scene in those days in Minneapolis? It was absolutely competitive. I mean, you know, cutting heads was what we used to love to do. And so many times Jimmy used to hand it to me. Boy, I used to get so heated, like... (laughs) He would come, the guys would show up a couple times. They ambushed us. <laughs> Where um, we played a, a gig one time and he showed up. They had all their people there in the front rows and everybody. I think it was a snowstorm or something that night. Yeah, probably so. And, um, it was at the dinner, not the dinner theater. What was the, a, Hesson, not the Supper Club. Hesson, the it supper was downtown. Club. downtown yeah, that's yeah. and so we set out to play and you know, it was a battle of the bands because we used to always do that. That's how you got people to come out. And... Um, they went on first, and everybody was there and hollering and screaming. And when we came out, and this was one of the weakest points of our band because we lost our horn section and probably a keyboard player or something. And Jimmy, Jimmy came out, and they smashed us. And uh, we got up there, and everybody walked out. <laughs> so I was, like, devastated. So I think two weeks later, there was a festival outside at a place called The Way Community Center. And... Uh, so I went on a hunt, and I picked out some more people. We got it, and we woodshed it, and we came out, and we stomped everybody at the festival. I mean, it was uh, Jimmy's group. It was uh, Prince and Morris's group, and we came out, and uh, we got this guy named Greg Williams, who was a really great singer. They came out and just 
killed everybody. It was over. The thing, you know, and the thing I remember about it was, it was funny because at the, so at the dinner theater gig that basically our band won. And he's right. We had all our whole family and all our friends. Like, we had our whole cheering section. And we killed it. I mean, we did. We killed it. But his band was at their lowest point because his band was always really good. And I remember telling my mom, no, we got to stay and watch Flight Time. And she's like, okay. And, I, and I'm like, they're really good. They're really good. And then they came out. And I'm like, well, where's the horn section? Wait, where's their keyboard player? Wait, what? And it, they were terrible. And my mom looked at me and she was like, flight time, huh? And I was like, damn. So the next, so he's right. So two weeks later, we played the gig and it wasn't one of our great gigs for whatever reason. We just weren't on it. And they came out wearing them costumes like in that picture and came out with the P-Funk and he had the Mutron hooked up to his bass. I was like going, oh, hell yeah. But I was looking at Terry, but I, it, wasn't, it wasn't hate. It was like, I love this motherfucker. This, I love Terry Lewis. Because Terry was looking at me with the face, with that, <laughs> with that face. And I was like, okay, this is a good, I'm just ass kicking. Like it's this. an ass kicking. I, yeah. I mean, but it was always cool. Like we always, like I said, we were just, we were connected. We were just connected. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Prince, I guess Prince Nelson in those days. When did you, when did you first encounter him? Where was he as far as this point in the scene in Minneapolis? Well, I actually, I met Prince in junior high school. I um, actually, we were in a piano class together and it wasn't really much of a piano class. It was kind of a way to get out of school for an hour. Um, you'd go and they had this keyboard lab set up where there was a bunch of keyboards and stuff and the teacher would give you, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb or, you know, London Bridge is Falling Down. They'd give you the sheet music and then they'd ask you to learn it. So we go, okay, teacher, and then we'd sit in kind of, and then when the teacher would leave, then we'd just be in there just jamming. And I remember, and I remember, I thought I was a pretty good keyboard player at that point in time, but I remember Prince could just play rings around me. Like, like it was a whole nother thing that he had, and I thought I was good, and he could just do stuff, and I just was like, man, this dude's nuts. And um, I remember that year, they put together a band for a, uh, like a school, like a play or a musical or something. And they said, who wants to be in the band? And I said, I'll be in the band. And they said, okay, what are you going to play? And I said, I'll play drums. He's like, okay, cool. Prince, what are you going to play? I thought he was going to say keyboards. He said, guitar, I'll play guitar. And I'm going, I didn't know a dude played guitar. Oh, that's cool. And we had a bass player and, you know, keyboard player, whatever. Okay, so we're good. So we're practicing, we're doing our thing, it's all cool. So then we take a break. So Prince starts playing the guitar solo from this song called Make Me Smile by Chicago. And back in the day, that was like the quintessential guitar solo. Like if you were a guitar player, you needed to know that solo. And he note for note just ripped it off. Like killed it, right? And I'm like going, damn, that, wow, that's good. So I go to the bathroom. I hear somebody on the drums. I'm thinking it's the band teacher on the drums. I come out, it's Prince on the drums. Like I don't even want to sit down behind the drums anymore. It's like... Dude, you got it, man. I mean, he was such a phenom. And then he had this band called Grand Central, right. which uh, Morris was the drummer. Morris Day was the drummer in that band. And Andre Simone was the bass player. And um, they were a really good band, but honestly, our bands would kick his band's ass. But he himself, yeah. you just knew. He just, he had something. But he started doing uh, demo tapes and stuff. There was a studio called Moon Sound, and he would go to this studio, the 16-track studio, and do these tapes, and he'd do them all himself, every instrument. 
go in and play the drums and play the keyboard and play the bass, and he'd do everything himself. So his whole thing was, I'm going to make it. You know, I'm going to get up out of here. And we were all rooting for him because we were like, we knew how talented he was, and we knew that if he got out, that that gave all of us a chance. So we were actually really like rooting for him to, to get out. So when he signed his record deal, was that seen pretty much as a lifeline then for, for the rest of the scene? I mean, did you guys have a plan and order of what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it? I think everybody had their own idea of what, at that time, we used to say getting over. But really back in that day, it actually meant getting better. <laughs> you know, I think getting over turned ahead. It turned a, a different way later on. But um, it was always known that Prince was going to be a, a phenom because he's the only guy that ever could just take anyone's instrument and play it better than them. Yeah. And that was just kind of the standard issue. I'll play it like this. And you say, um, I, can, I can't play it like that. <laughs> but um, we were just happy for him to get out because other people had gotten out of Minneapolis, but none that close, nothing that tangible. So what it did is it gave everybody hope. So at that point, everybody just committed to being better musicians. Because as a musician in Minneapolis, you, could you support yourself if you were in a, a black band in Minneapolis? If you were a black musician in Minneapolis, you had very few options to play. Um, so what we had to do is become entrepreneurs and create options. And so what we would do is we would rent hotel ballrooms or wherever we could rent and say, okay, we'll take the door, you take the bar, and we're going to have a gig. And then we'd have to counsel with all the the five families <laughs> and say, okay, we're going to do like uh, everybody gets paid this amount and the winner of the battle gets this amount. And so we'd be that way. And there was a group called The Family. They were like gangsters. You didn't want to lose the battle because you would win. The, you would lose the war too. They started pulling out guns and machetes and everything else. So um, when they got involved, man, you always just let them win. Yeah. <laughs> but... Actually, Prince ended up, before he left Minneapolis, that was the band he was in. Yep. And that was, uh, you know, Randy Barber, Sonny Thompson, Joe Lewis. Yeah. You know, it was a great band. Great band. They were, they were, they were tremendous. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very competitive. And it was, you know, if you've seen Purple Rain, the whole kind of idea of Purple Rain was there's one club and all the bands are trying to play in one club. And they're like, well, we got four bands, but I only got three slots. And that was kind of the way we grew up. It was very competitive, but it was good for us. Because it taught us that um, it doesn't really matter how good you are if you can't, first of all, find a place to play. So if you can't find a place to play, you make your own place. And then the economics of it was that we started pulling, you know, we would, we would have a, a, a job and we would end up playing uh, a gig and we'd take all the people from all the clubs that wouldn't let us play. And then the next thing you know, the clubs would be sitting empty and everybody would go, where's everybody at? And they're like, well, they're down watching the band you wouldn't let play, you know? And so it became sort of like legend, uh, our bands and stuff. It's like, no, no, you got to go down and see them because it's going to be a great show. And uh, there was no internet, obviously. There's no, you know, tweets or no nothing like that. So we like printed up flyers and we put them on, their, on everybody's windshield of their car and all that kind of, I mean, it was like you just had to become a business person in addition to doing your music stuff. So how did flight time become the time? Well, there was a short transition period. Prince was out on tour, and he took Morris with him to do some filming of his shows. Uh, during that period, Prince was still working on some of his records, and 
he did a song with Morris called Party Up. I'll make this long story short. He told Morris that if he did the song with him, he could take the credit and get paid for it, or he'd do a band for him. Morris chose the band. And so at that time, it was a, a, a transition period for Prince also because he was changing his band. Because I, I remember getting the call from Prince first and Prince asking me to be in his band because he was, uh, Andre Simone was transitioning out. So he said, uh, he called me, he said, Terry Lewis. I said, yeah, it's Prince. Uh, you want to be my bass player? I said, uh, sure. Learn all my songs. That was it. So like a month later, I get a call from Morris. Morris said, yeah, man, I'm going to start this thing. I want you to be the bass player. I said, well, I already talked to Prince about doing his thing. He said, well, which would you rather do? I said, I'd rather be with you because Morris was like one of our guys. He used to play with us as well. So I chose to do that. And so at that point, I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. And he said, well, put together, keep together the band you got. And in that band at that time, we had Alexander O'Neill was our singer. Jelly Bean Johnson was our drummer. Monty Moyer was our keyboard player. And I was jabbing at Jimmy to get back in the group to get him to come and be the other keyboard player. And so uh, eventually that happened. And so we went on for the next month and they came back and we, they started to record. And actually the group was going to be called The Nerve at the time. So we had a meeting. <laughs> yeah. It's the infamous meeting with Alexander O'Neill, Prince, and, and, and the rest of us. And Alex couldn't see eye to eye with, with Prince about the paper. <laughs> you know, Prince, I need the paper. I need some paper, Prince. And, um, I need a new house, a new car. You know, Swimming like pool thing. thing like that there. And so uh, <laughs> this old band thing is cute and everything, Prince, but yeah, you know, yeah, I, you know yeah. Alexander O'Neill need the paper. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> So I can't get the paper, so I just go and throw down the steak. And so he threw down the steak, and we left there. <laughs> and uh, so they went back out on tour. Morris called back, said that I'm going to be the front guy, so put Jellybean back in. Jellybean was already our drummer. And that's when it became the time, which is just a der derivative of flight time. Right. And the only thing you didn't, you didn't put in there was Jesse. Because Jesse had come to town uh, to the guitar player. Jesse had come to town to audition for Prince. He thought Prince was looking for a guitar player. And Prince said, no, I'm not looking for a guitar player. I'm looking for a bass player. But you should stick around in town, join one of the local bands, and just stick around town. So Jesse went and joined Morris's band. And everybody kept telling us, man, y'all see the guitar player Morris's band got? Because it was still like you know competitive and stuff. We were like, okay, we'll go went over and checked him out. And he was serious. 10-minute guitar solos and stuff, pink suit. We were like, oh, man, this dude's, this dude's good. So we, we recruited him. We said, uh, come over and hear our band. You know, our band's better than your band, than you're in. So he came over to our band. He watched us play. And then he called Morris, and he said, yo, Morris, he said, nothing personal, but I'm going to go join Flight Time. And, and Morris basically said to him, that's cool. Go ahead and join them, because pretty soon we're all going to be one band. And nobody knew really what that meant until Terry got the phone call, <laughs> you know, that we were all going to be in the same band together. So. Right. But, that, yeah. But that was, that was how we all came together. So you formed a band. Who was in charge then at this point? In charge of? The band, the band. and the material and, and well, what was going to happen. Like, how, how did you figure that out and how did that get reconciled? 
Well, I guess they say the best way to, the, the, to be a good leader is to be a good follower. At that time, it's like whoever needed to lead would lead. We always knew that this was Morris's thing. So Morris was absolutely the leader. And the producer of it all was Prince. So Prince, in the, the, the early days, did all the music. That was just the way it was, and we were absolutely okay with that. The one thing I will add, though, is that although Morris was the leader of the group, the real leader was Terry. Because Morris, anything that came up, Morris would always defer to Terry and say, Terry, what do you think? And the reason was is because Terry always, as he said earlier, Ter Terry was always the leader. Whether it was athletics or whatever it was in his life, he was always the gatherer, the leader, the person to, to do that kind of stuff. So Morris always depended on Terry to, to do that stuff. But I, give, I, I can't say enough good things about Morris. That brother's... He, I'll tell you the, the greatest thing, I mean, not the greatest thing, but I'll just give you one example that I always remember, was back when we, so when we were in the time, and of course, as Terry said, Prince was doing all the music and basically doing everything, him and Morris. We were totally fine with that. But we wanted to, to get out on our own and start writing and doing things ourselves. And Prince wasn't always <laughs> happy about that, <laughs> but, uh, but Morris was. Morris was always very encouraging to us and told us, you know, you guys go do what you do. But then he called a meeting one day and told the whole band. He said, hey, I'm taking, I'm, here's what I'm doing. I'm taking acting lessons because I want to do different things, right? Jimmy and Terry are out there writing and producing and doing their thing. The rest of y'all, I suggest, figure something that you want to do out because it's, this band ain't going to last forever. So everybody find something that you want to do and start doing it. And I have so much respect for him doing that because it was encouraging to us, but it also got everybody else off their ass too, or at least the people that should have gotten you know, off their asses. Some of them didn't. Some of them bought VCRs, right? So it was like, <laughs> I mean, that's an inside joke, but it's, but it's like literally when we were coming off a tour, me and Terry were saving all our money to buy equipment and, and stuff so we could come to LA and start doing demos and, and trying to do stuff. And Terry said, who wants to come to LA with me? And I said, I'll go. And everybody else is like, man, you crazy, man. I'm saving my money for a VCR. And it's like, anybody even know what a VCR is? I mean, it's like, I mean, I mean it's funny because back in that day, that was the coveted thing, yeah. a VCR. So it was like, we were like, okay, cool, you know. But Morris told everybody, here's what's up. And, and we took his advice to heart. Um, did you feel a part of this Minneapolis sound that was coming out, did you, from the inside, did you think of it as such? Or, you know, was that just something that media or whoever would conveniently, you know, place an umbrella over all of these different groups and musicians? Well, I think there, there was always a Minneapolis sound. I think if, if, if you want to, like, define it and put your finger on one person, you would have to do Prince as that person. But the funny part about it is that as great as Prince was, he pulled stuff from all of us. There was a bass player uh, that actually went on to be with uh, NPG, New Power Generation, Prince's, one of Prince's renditions of groups, um, incarnations of group. Uh, he taught all of us a lot. Prince played with him. He taught Prince a lot about guitar, a lot about bass. He taught me a lot about bass, you know, in terms of tone, like the, the boogaloo bubbly tone, <laughs> a, a, a lot of that stuff, Prince 
got after he heard some of my tone because I played with Sam and Dave for a short period. And Sam and Dave, you know, you couldn't play the bass. They said, you don't know, you don't play anything over the E string and the A string. And you don't get up to the G and the D. You don't do that. You know, you play the bass. You're a bass player. So turn all that treble out of your bass. And, and that's where I learned to, to tone it down. And, you know, because at that time, you know, the Brothers Johnson, you know, all the, the trebly bass was going on and the plucking and picking. They said none of that. So, you know, I was torn in between that. And so they taught me that. And they taught me, okay, play behind the beat. You know, don't play on top of the beat. You can be behind the beat because you want to make that transient fat, you know. So that all came from that world. And then Prince had his own world. And so if you listen to his record, some of that stuff translates into his world. And if you listen, if you, if you know anything about Sonny Thompson, listen to Sonny Thompson play, and you'll see why Prince got some stuff from Sonny Thompson, which is why eventually he went back and got him when he figured he could manage it all because that's a big thing to get your mentor to come and play in your group. You know, another, Larry Graham, another one. So, so we all borrow from each other. And um, he used to come to our practice, and we used to practice and um, we used to always joke about it and say, okay, yeah, tomorrow we're going to hear that on Warner Brothers Records and Tapes <laughs> because that's exactly what would happen. But it was all good. Yeah, we'd always say, Prince, why don't you go groove with your own band? <laughs> but our group, we were funkier. So whenever Prince wanted to work something out that he had in his head, he'd come with our band. As he'd come over and he'd start jamming, and we'd all start jamming, and then back in that day was a cassette. All of a sudden, somebody would press record on the cassette. And then we'd play for an hour or something. Then we'd walk out. Prince would pop out the cassette. And the next day, we'd hear something very similar to what it was we jammed on, you know? And so it got to the point where Prince would walk into to rehearsal. He'd start jamming. And we'd all kind of go... Yeah, I think I'm gonna get some need. Uh, I think I'm gonna, you know, we'd be like, because we were like, or or I'd be noodling around on the keyboards, and he'd go, Jimmy Jam, what's that? You're what you're playing, Jimmy Jam? What are you playing? <laughs> nothing, Prince. Nothing, man. Just trying to get a sound up, you know. Just nothing. One day, I'll tell you a quick story. So Morris was always he wore the same. We called that jacket. He always wore the Presley, right? So he used to. He was got tired of wearing the Presley. He said, Prince, I need a different jacket. And Prince was like, no, that's what people expect to see you in, so you have to wear the Presley. <laughs> so one day Morris just said, man, I'm getting me a new Presley. So he had somebody, you know, make a new Presley for him. Looked like the old one, but a little shinier, a little new, nice and new. So at that point of the tour, I remember we were just firing on all cylinders. And we were kicking Prince's ass every single night. About to be kicked off. Yeah, we, right. As a matter of fact, they were about to find us our own tour because it was a little, getting a little too high. So, um, so we came out, Prince watched our show. We absolutely killed the show, I remember. And uh, Prince comes backstage, and sometimes he would hang, no, no, I'm sorry, it was before the show, before the show. Prince would sometimes come to our dressing room and just kind of hang out, right, just, you know, whatever. And we'd be like, hey, Prince, you know, whatever, whatever. He comes into the dressing room, and uh, he goes, what's up with you guys today? And Morris says, Hey Prince, I got something for you. And Jerome hands him the new, it's in all in a like in a thing. He unzips it. He said, Look at this, Prince. I got a new Presley. Woo! 
And Prince goes, I created a monster, and goes running out the room. And, <laughs> and at that point, I, you know, it was like, yeah, we were about to get kicked off a tour. Because it was just, it was just, he was too much. But it's like Prince created that, you know. And I think there was a little bit, I used to watch him watch us perform and he he used to try to hide off the side of the stage and he'd watch us and he'd be out there cracking up Morris would be combing his hair and then Jerome would bring the mirror out and be all this crazy stuff and he would love it until he saw that we saw him and then he'd like straighten up like he'd get like a real straight face and it was like you know it's like it was almost like he was like our dad or something like it was like he was so proud of his kids you know but then it's like but the kids shouldn't be beating me you know it was really, it was interesting. But no, Prince, Prince was the best. We're so blessed to be able to work with him. Yeah. And how did he find out that you were doing your own productions then? Well, <laughs> so, so we were on tour, and, we, and this was 82 going into 83, and we, had, um, we basically had four days off in New York. And uh, we had met um, Clarence Avant, and Clarence Avant is a person that owned Taboo Records, which was where the SOS band uh, recorded. Well, actually, that's how we got kicked out of the time. Is that the story? Yeah, yeah, it's the same story. The same story? Okay. So, so anyway, we go down to Atlanta to produce the SOS band. And uh, we, we did, um, you know, we thought, well, wow, this will be cool. We got the four days off. We'll go in and for three days we'll do it. And then the morning of the next show, which was in San Antonio, we'll just hop a plane, go to San Antonio. No big deal. So the morning we're leaving, it snows. But I'm talking about, now we're from Minneapolis, right? So snow is snow. This was like, like I, it was what we call a dusting. Like you might take a broom and maybe broom your sidewalk off maybe, but it's not enough to do anything. It shut the whole airport down. So now we're in Atlanta at the airport, and, and the Atlanta airport was crazy because there was four different terminals. We were just trying to get any flight out so we could connect and get to San Antonio. And the whole airport totally shut down. And at a certain point, we realized we're not going to make the gig. So they went on that night and did the gig without us, which was interesting. But Prince played from behind the stage because he, knew, of course, knew, knew all the parts. He did the records, right? So he played. Jerome, Terry's brother, stood in Terry's place and acted like Terry. <laughs> and the gig went off. And people, I don't think people to this day really knew that they weren't getting the full group. And when we finally got there, we got fined. You know, they said, oh, you're fined $3,000, which was laughable because we were only making $150 a week. So it's like, you're fining us three grand out of what? You know, it's like, we're not making any money anyway. But that was kind of how we got found out. And, and so then there was a, we, we were still cool because nobody, we, we were fine, but the thought was, why'd you go? That's what you get for going down and seeing them girls. Everybody thought we went down to see some girls in Atlanta. So it was cool. But then what happened, Billboard magazine came out and there was a picture of us with the SOS band. <laughs> and we were like trying to hide every Billboard magazine because there's no internet now. So it wasn't like you could look it up on the net. It's like you had to see the Billboard. And every time we would see a Billboard magazine, we'd like hide it. And, you know, Prince was like, where's my billboard? Like, I don't know, Prince. <laughs> We'd, like, hide them. There'd be a ton of them. The manager would have one, and, the, you know, the booking agent would have one, and we were, like, hiding them all, right? And, of course, finally he saw it, our picture in there, and he knew what was up. So um, that summer, we ended up uh, being called to Sunset Sound to do, a, a we thought, a time gig or uh, recording. And uh, we were supposed to be mixing the SOS records we had done. And we got in a room, and it was myself, Terry, Jesse, Prince, and Morris. 
Prince just simply goes, I told you guys not to produce outside acts, and you did, so you're fired. And I was like, okay, cool. And I got up and left. Terry stayed in the room, re- tried to reason for a little bit. So now we're outside Sunset Sound, and we, as we call it, kicking rocks. You know, you're just kind of out there just moping around and stuff. You're like, what do you want to do, man? And we were like, well, we still got the recording session up the street. Why don't we go up there and see what's going on? So we go up to the studio called Larrabee Sound. Steve Hodge is the engineer. And by the way, the only reason we knew Larrabee Sound and Steve Hodge was because of liner notes, which aren't on records anymore for whatever reason. But on the liner notes when we were kids and we would read, and, and we like Steve Hodge and we like Larrabee Sound. We like something about that. So that's why we picked that studio, just from off the liner notes. So we walk in. I don't even think we had met Steve Hodge at that point. So we walk in, and he says, what's wrong with you guys? And we said, hey, we just got fired from the time. He said, really? He said, wow. He said, well, I don't think you have anything to worry about because this record you guys got here is a smash. And we were like, really? And he had mixed enough to know, and he was right, and it was a smash. And what was that song called? Uh, Just Be Good to Me. All right. Why do you think uh, SOS Band was such a great vehicle for your songs? You guys, this was the first, well, not the first, actually, but one of the early, the biggest the early ones. Yeah, it was, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it it was the first. Yeah, I mean, we did a song called High Hopes uh, before that we didn't produce. Actually, Leon Silvers produced it. We wrote it. And actually, that song was the one that actually got us the meeting with Clarence Avon, which was very, so very pivotal, very important for us. You know, when I earlier was talking about, you know, we were talking about the funky bottom and the pretty top. This was the culmination of that to me, first of all. It was the funky bottom but it was the pretty melodies over the top and even Glockenspiel's on that record too. So it was really a, a good combination of what it was we did or, or where we found our place. The other thing was we were always, I think one of the things, one of our strengths as producers was always, if it was an established group we were working with, doing the homework and figuring out what it was that worked about what they did and the SOS band had, I mean, Take Your Time, Do It Right, which was their first record, was just huge. And they weren't able to follow it up. And that's pretty common. And we listened so much to Take Your Time, Do It Right that the certain elements we pulled from that song, the glockenspiel, which was part of it, which was important, the repetition of the bass line where it's over and over and over and over. Like there's no bridge, there's no nothing. It's just the same thing over and over. Like we thought that was the key all of those things. We thought those were important elements to making a great SOS band record. And then at the end of the day, as fans of a group, because you have to be a fan to work with somebody, it's always been our barometer, what would we like to hear them do? If someone said, wow, there's a new SOS band record out, what would we want it to sound like? And then that's what we try to create. Mm-hmm. Um, you've described this, this gentleman over here as a, as a vocal and lyric master. And I'd like you to elaborate on that a little bit more as to why that is. Well, here's the thing. I'll give you an example. Uh, I'll just, well, there's many examples. I'll just give the one that pops into my head always is, I'm very long-winded, so it takes me a while to actually say something. And Terry can sum up what I say in three words. And I think that's part of his uh, gift. And so I remember when we were working on uh, Rhythm Nation with Janet, and we had this concept for a song uh, that was living in a world they didn't make. Like, that was the concept of the song. 
because we were watching CNN and there had been a school shooting and all these kids had been getting killed and we just thought, we got to talk about that on a record. We got we to gotta address this. And so we were, in the, we were in our flight time, our first flight time studio, but we were building a second bigger one. And so Jana kept saying, we need Terry, we need Terry. And I said, yeah, we do. So Terry shows up at the studio at the old flight time where we're recording. He comes in the door with like carpet samples and all these different stuff for this new studio. Jam, what do you think about this carpet and whatever? I'm like, Terry, Terry, no, no, no. We need lyrics. And he says, well, what's the concept? And I said, okay, so these kids got killed at this school. And, you know, it's not their fault. You know, it's the adults' fault. You know, it's our mistakes, man. It's us messing up, right? The adults are messing it up for the kids. And it's like, you know, something, something, something. And I go into this hole, and me and Janet are telling them this whole thing. And Terry just goes, living in a world they didn't make. We're like, yeah. Terry goes, <laughs> 10 minutes later, has the lyrics, hands us the lyrics. There you go. And that was it. And that, to me... You know, that song is obviously as relevant today as it was, you know, 25 years ago when we did it with what's going on in the world right now. So that to me is the gift that he has for lyrics and also through Janet's growth as a lyricist, but also Terry's growth in knowing her so well. I think lyrically that is by far her strongest album. If you listen to the Unbreakable album and it's because of Terry and you know, for instance, she said to Terry, I got this concept for a song, Black Eagle. And it's got to be about uh, kids around the world and about abuse and about this and blah, 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 Black Eagle. <laughs> and Terry's like, okay. And this didn't take a day. Terry was literally like five days in this little, I call it the cubicle at our studio. It's like this little place where he's got his little laptop and, his, and he just sits there. And there's like one light like the accountant or something, right? And he's just over there just coming up with a line by line. And he would every day he'd come up and show her a line. What do you think of this? And she'd go, oh, yeah, I love that. I love that. He'd go, okay, cool. And every day I'd go, how you coming, Terry? Oh, cool, it's coming, it's coming, <laughs> you know. And finally, so if you listen to the song um, a Black Eagle on, on the album, I mean, it's just, he just has a knack for that. And then the vocal part of it is... Um, one, one more story. Vocally, I call him vocal master, and that's about product, production, the vocal production. And there's two songs to me, uh, Human by the Human League. If you listen to that record and listen to Phil Oakey's vocal, now, Phil Oakey on all of the Human League records was always very robotic and <laughs> like that. But if you listen to Human, there's a lot of feeling on that, and that, that vocal took a week, you know? That, that was Terry just, you know, drilling him down and knocking him down and giving him the confidence to try to step out of, you know, this robotic thing that he had and actually sing. And that vocal to me is, that's the best vocal he's ever, he's ever done, um, Phil has ever done. The other song is, there's a song we did with Usher called You Remind Me. And when L.A. Reid actually sent us the track to that song and said, this song is either off the album or my first single but we can't get the vocal right. So I told Usher to go back in and redo it, and he said the only person he'll go back in and do a vocal with is Terry Lewis. So Terry said, okay, I'll do it, let's go. Terry goes out, to, we're still in Minneapolis at this point, Terry goes out to LA, they work on the vocal for like a week. It was really a thing where the guy that sang the demo of the song, Usher was trying to sing it like the guy that did the demo instead of singing it like himself. So the psychological part of breaking Usher down to basically make it his own song, he had to first forget what he had heard. Like, I got to take that totally out of your brain, first of all. 
Then I got to rebuild you as Usher. And now we got to sing this like an Usher song. You have to own the song. And when it was done, I remember we sent it to L.A. And uh, he called like two hours later and he said, you guys got the first single. And it was a number one record and a, and a huge record for him. So the vocals are so important. And we were taught that you're not a producer unless you can do the whole thing. You can do vocals. I know nowadays there's vocal producers and people that just do that. We were taught you got to do the whole thing. And so when it comes to lyrics, when it comes to vocal mastering, it's Terry Lewis is the guy. Well, Terry, what do you, why do you think you have this gift, this talent? But then also, but then also... What what would you advise people who aren't Terry Lewis, who, you know, don't have that pedigree as far as instructing somebody to try to get a performance out of them or directing somebody to get a performance out of them that you want? Well, I think I, I, I get the gift because it's not about me. You know, um, I have a lot to say about certain things, but I like to say them very short because I don't like to mix up the words too much. Sometimes we get lost in the words. I think that's why writing, I can get it out. Um, as far as working with people, my job and my aspiration is always to get the best of that person. So I want to meet them wherever they are and figure out what they need for themselves to get that out. So always ask artists. The first thing I ask them, I say, well, okay, uh, like Usher, I say, Usher, what is the key ingredient to an Usher record. And most artists go around the world, oh, the beat, the this, the that, the lyric, the that of it. I say like, okay, really? You don't know what the key ingredient is. And so that key ingredient would be Usher. So if Usher's not good on the record, then the record's not a good Usher record. It could be a great record, could be a great record for anyone else, but how do I get the best of the artist on this piece of song or whatever it is? beat, whatever. So that's always my aspiration. And, and I don't mind. I have patience. I can just sit there and do it. And I allow, allow the artist to just take, take after take after take until they feel like they have what they want. And then I, I'm, I don't have a problem sifting through it and comping it together. I mean, you, obviously, you guys have been able to adapt through all sorts of movements, from the band era to embracing electronics and drum machines, and embracing sampling, and all of these different facets. Some of your contemporaries seem like they had a, a, hard a harder time adjusting. Why do you think that you were able to, and have been able to, navigate these different changes and movements over time? You know, I mean, is it, does it, have you had to check yourself in terms of remaining open-minded to something that maybe you you know, wasn't in your, in your uh, wheelhouse, you know, as far as understanding initially or, you know? Well, I, I thought there's, a, that's, there's, a, there's a, actually a whole lot of places to go here. Number one, I would say, because there's the both of us, and even though we're very compatible, uh, but we have different tastes. And things that I like, he may not like, and vice versa. But we also have the respect, and part of respect is loving what someone else loves. And if I love something, even if Terry doesn't see it, he loves it because of me. And that goes the same with him. So that's the first place it starts with the respect. Terry is also very technically, like we now take Pro Tools for granted, right? But like the early, early 
versions of those things Terry had. And Terry had on this little Commodore, I don't know, it was a Commodore computer or an Apple computer. I don't remember what he had. It was PC. And he had these little programs with sound waves and stuff on them. And I'm like, Terry, what are you doing, man? He said, I'm going to figure this shit out, man. I'm going to figure this out, man, because this, this is where it's going. And I'm like, yeah, man, okay, whatever. I, I had no tolerance for it, but he did. It's like that's what drives him. So I think in that way, technologically, it's about keeping up with whatever's going on and using the tools that are available. So I think that's part of it. But... Also, we have kids, and our kids keep us very young because we listen to what it is that they listen to. And we don't really take the attitude of, we, now listen, we love the music from back in the day. Like, give me a good James Brown record, a good Sly and the Family Stone record. I'm, I'm all over that. Like, I'd rather hear those records than hear our records, quite honestly. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we... We can't hold a candle to those records. We can't hold a candle to Gamble and Huff's records. We can't hold a candle to Quincy Jones records. We, but we do what we do, and we do it pretty good. But we aspire to do that. So some, well, some of the stuff what I hear my kids play, that's you know, it's nothing but. And I go, hmm, okay, but you know what? They like this, so there's got to be something there. Something there is affecting them the way that whatever we grew up with affected us. So we keep a very open mind about it. And we also, because we're collaborators, if somebody comes in and goes, man, you heard the latest uh, Drake or you heard the latest uh, you know, Chance the Rapper or you heard the whatever, it's like, you damn well, damn right we've heard it. Because we got to hear it. We have to. You know, It's part of what we do. So when we're referencing things, we can reference those types of things. So I don't know if that totally answers the question. I mean, Terry's got a take on it too, but I, yeah. it's just it's. But Terry said it though. You got to be open. You got to let music happen, and you got to be open to it. You can't just dismiss stuff and go, "I don't, I don't hear it. I don't like it." it doesn't work. Yeah, and my ex- explanation will be like uh, something that Quincy Jones said to quote Quincy. He said, "You're only as old as your ability to accept and process new things. So you have to be able to leave yourself open to something new." And not be afraid of it. Because you don't want to sound like somebody, oh, I can't do that email. I ain't going to talk to nobody on the email. Be- because if you're not doing that, you're left behind. You're done. It's over. Your world is over. I'm, so you got to be able to take whatever the information that's coming in and say, okay, how can I put this down in the world that I live in and make it relevant to what I do? So that's what we've always tried to do. We try to get ahead of things. Um, right now, um, Stephen Slate came out with a council that's, just the iPad. And so when everybody saw that, everybody was crazy. Oh, that's never going to work. I said, oh, that's going to be the biggest thing since ice cream and cake. Why? Because that's all kids know. You give a baby an iPhone, the baby knows how to work it in like two minutes. You know, you give them an iPad, they know how to pull up movies when they're two years old. So that's all they're going to know. They're not going to know faders. Like, tactical faders and you know you feel them they're gonna know the ipad i can just push it and push it up it works so for the future and for the price point it makes sense to me because i think everything is is all about technology and economics that's all it is people used to uh i remember when uh you mentioned sampling earlier and i remember when sampling came out and i remember people talking to me all the time about like well, when Beethoven was making music and, you know, when Mozart was making music. And I'm going, 
these guys would be using this stuff whatever's available you use whatever the best if you're a creator whatever the best stuff is available is what you use i don't care who your beethoven or whatever you can say if all he had was a piano that's cool but if he found a harpsichord or he found a celeste or he found whatever it was they were going to use it because that was what was available to them so i don't i don't agree with that and the other thing people always used to say was like on the sampling thing is be like I know y'all don't like sampling, huh? Because that's like cheating. And I'm like, well, no, not really. I mean, I love sampling. I love doing a record like All For You that samples Glow of Love by Change and Luther Vandross and have the writer of Glow of Love come up to me and go, man, you bought me my house. <laughs> you know, because I'm not, I'm not into stealing. I'm not into taking something illegally and using it. But if people get credit for it, the idea of introducing people to new music through old music and the, and the music I grew up with. I sampled Ventura Highway by America, one of my favorite songs growing up. We did a song called Someone to Call My Lover with Janet. And I met uh, Dewey Brunel and, and the other gentleman in America, I can't remember his name. I met him on a plane. And he said, hey man, you built me my swimming pool. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm glad. But you guys, I was raised on your music. So I'm so happy to be able to do it. And by the way, when I played the track for Janet, she had never heard it in her life. And that was great. So I introduced her to something that she really loved. So I, I, see, I love sampling. I love the technology. The thing is, don't let the technology use you, you know, but you use it to the way that it, it works for you. What should people know about Janet Jackson as a musician, as an artist that perhaps they don't know generally? I just think how good she is. I mean, she is so amazing. First of all, her lineage is crazy, right? I mean, you come out of the Jackson family and you're growing up with, you know, arguably, you know, the best musical family ever that existed. She got a chance to grow up around that. She got a chance to see the work ethic that they had um, to really learn the business, uh, to be an entertainer at an early age. The acting and all the other things she did to me just prepared her to be a better and more expressive songwriter and singer. And, you know, people say that, well, she doesn't have a, a really good voice, but it, actually she has a really good voice, but in the sense of, I always compared her to Diana Ross. To me, there were certain singers, as opposed to like Whitney Houston, like Whitney Houston is, was like a singer you listened to, right? Dinah Ross was a singer you sang along with, right? She had a knack for melody, and that's what Janet had. If you give her a great melody, to me, she sings it and makes it infectious so that you want to sing along. And I think that is her gift. She's also fearless. You think about the records that we've asked Janet to sing over the years. Think about Nasty and think about the attitude on the song Nasty, which has become uh, ubiquitous again <laughs> due to uh, the Trump uh, stuff, uh, Nasty Woman stuff. So, um, But think about the way she sings that song. Think about a song like If, where she's literally singing. I mean, I remember giving her the, the, the melody. To, to if, she said, what should the melody be? And I said, I hear something like almost like an Indian chant, like a Native American, like and she comes back the next day, sitting over here with the lust in your eyes, saying, don't give a damn. And I'm like going, wow, okay. And then go in and sing it. I said, can you sing that low? She said, yeah, I'll give it a try. She didn't care. And so as writers and producers, you're like, if somebody just is like, I don't care, I trust you. It's like when we stack this harmony, the notes are going to be right next to each other. It's not going to sound right, but it'll be, trust me, it'll sound good when it's done. She said, oh, I trust you. Okay, cool. And then we put the harmonies down and you end up with like, love will never do the way those harmonies work or, you know, whatever. To me, she is, um, 
She is the inspiration. She is the muse for us. Anybody we work with, it has to be someone who we really want to write songs for and we really want to do, try to do our best work. And she, for us, is that person. I think all great producers over the years, um, certainly George uh, Martin with the Beatles or Steve Scholes with Elvis Presley, you know, the gentleman that produced the B, all the Bee Gees records. And, you know, there's certain people that you just connect with. And for Janet, that's, she's our, like our muse to me. She's amazing. She's, she's the best. Terry, what about just even on a, on a, I mean, Jimmy mentioned the vocals, but I mean, just on a lyric writing and vocal side of it, what is, what stands out to you? Well, I think when Janet writes, the thing that stands out to me is that it's always heartfelt. It comes right from the heart. And I always say what comes from the heart reaches the heart. Like she, she is so in it that it just, it becomes infectious. So I love when we do records together because we just bounce stuff back and forth. And that's always a, a great foundation for me because I, I hate to write for anyone in a vacuum. I have to be around them. It's, that's where the inspiration comes from, that energy. And uh, we have such great exchanges. So I, I really love that part about writing with Janet. I guess I'm just sort of curious to know, when you're in the moment of this kind of success through the 80s and 90s, how does it feel to be on this sort of unprecedented streak of success that doesn't seem to end over even 10 years, but you know, maybe 15 years or whatever until you're doing it for three decades? I mean, when the moment of all of that success what does that actually feel like? And does it make you nervous? Does it make you feel like you just need to keep going and make sure it doesn't end? Yeah, um, well, it feels good, certainly. Yeah. You know, uh, to, to have expression in, in art and for people to like it and receive it well, that's always great. But I think what it did, and I'll speak for myself personally, you know, it just makes you fearless. Like, there was no genre or style that we wouldn't try. And that's what I love about music, is that there's so many possibilities. And um, we've been able to go through different genres and have success. And that's what makes it cool for me. It keeps me on my toes. It keeps my juices flowing. I always want to try something different. And I encourage anyone to always want to try something different. Um, it's interesting. So when we, and I say our first little role that we went on was kind of through the Control album, and I remember we got the producer of the year, we won the Grammy for producer of the year. And I remember right after that, Clarence Avant, whose name I bring up again because he's so important to us, ordered us to take a two-week vacation. And we hadn't we were like vacation. What are we talking about, Clarence? We got all these acts lined up. We were producing records. He said, you take a vacation for two weeks. You can't go to the studio. That's the stipulation. And we were like, oh, my God. What are you talking about? Okay, fine. Right, whatever. So remember the first couple of days, called Terry on the phone. What you doing, man? Nothing, man. <laughs> what, you up to, what you up to, Jam? Uh, nothing. <laughs> you know. And we went through that for like the first week. Second week, we kind of settled into it a little bit. We're kind of like, what you up to, man? Nothing, man. That feels good to do nothing, man. Yeah, I agree, man. This does feel good. Yeah, this is cool. Call Clarence up. Clarence, can we take a third week off? <laughs> he said, absolutely. So we took a third week off. 
And then we eased back into it, I would say, because Herb Alpert was making an album, and John McClain, who was at AM, said, Would you want to produce Herb Alpert? He said, It's no pressure, just if you'd be interested. And we kind of thought, this is a great project to jump back into because there is no pressure, there's no expectation, except that we want to do good by Herb because Herb had looked out for us so much on the Janet records and even giving us a chance to even record. So it was like, cool. And we ended up having a number one record with him and his first really number one record in 20 years. you know. And so what it did, I say that to say that that gave us perspective on longevity and that was kind of our, even going back to like, I was reading one of our first interviews we ever did. And we said, somebody mentioned saying the hottest producers. And I said, we don't want to be the hottest producers. We want to just be warm for a long time. <laughs> and so we kind of always set out to do that and be consistent and have a career. And so that a lot of the decisions we made were all based on having a long career. So that was, because we kind of set that as our goal, the last thing I'll say is on that is that Clarence Avant, the other thing, is we always kept an eye towards doing other things. Because Clarence said, what are you guys going to be doing in seven years? That was right after the SOS band. What are you going to be doing in seven years? And we said, we're going to be making hits. And he said, no, no, but besides that, what are you going to be doing? Is you, you got to get involved in politics. You got to get involved with who's going to be the next me, who's going to be the next Barry Gordy, who's going to be the next people running and labels and signing acts. And you got to start thinking about that. You got to start thinking about other talent that's out there. And, you know, when you see talent that needs help and stuff, you need to make sure you reach out and help them and all of that. And L.A. and Babyface at the time, who were thought of as our rivals, because we both had records on, we both were a production duo, but those guys were actually our friends. And when we, uh, they needed a boost, they, they had some bad business dealings, and we introduced L.A. to Clarence, who got their business straight, and they, of course, went on, L.A. now runs Sony, uh, chairman of Sony Music, and Babyface is obviously one of the great writers of all time. So it was those kinds of, uh, those were the other things. So it was, yes, it was nice we were on a, on a nice streak of records, but we also kind of took the time to take time out to do some other things. And I remember the funny thing is always whenever we did get a number one record, <laughs> we would like literally, somebody would go, hey, your record's number one this week. And we go, yeah, that's great. Oh, cool. What we got up next, Terry? What are we going to do? I mean, we literally just always kept looking forward. It was always whatever the next thing was, you know? And mind you, all the representatives would always tell you you're crazy for wanting to do a Herb Alpert record. Right. Yeah, right. Why would, you Why would you do a Herb Alpert in the middle of doing Janet Jackson? Right. Like, because we can. Why not? Right. Why would we do a gospel song or a gospel group for our first signing on our label? Right. Because we can. Right. Why wouldn't we? Right. So I, I think, you know, you, you have to keep the inspiration at the level that you, you need it, not at the level that people want it, that work for you. You have to always be inspired by the music itself. And one thing that we've always done, praise God for that, is keep the music first. It's always about the music. It's not about the money. It's not about the fame. It's not about anything other than the music. Thank you, Mr. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. 
before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the academy in Montreal. But we do events around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening. 